We are starting a, a new message series called Keep Fighting. Uh, this is one that we've actually been talking about for probably six or seven months. And it's really cool the way I think God's kind of put it together and I think what God's going to do um, through it. It's a three-part series. And so I'd encourage you to, to make each one of them. Uh, if for some reason you can't be there, I'd, I'd encourage you to watch it or listen to the podcast or something because they do all really work together. Um, you can scan the QR code on the screen behind me or you can go to northwood.church slash notes. That'll be the notes that you can follow along with. It's also, if you're in a, in a um, group that talks about the sermons, um, this is a great tool for you to have some discussion points and kind of remember some of the things um, that have been said. But the idea of keep fighting, I don't know exactly what you think of when you hear those words or you see the graphic, you see boxing gloves and keep fighting. It's like, it's kind of like, okay, where are we going? I'm, I'm good at this one. Like, this is one that I feel good at. Um, but as Christians, and this is a series that is, is geared towards Christians. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you'll have, you'll have opportunities to, to become a follower of Jesus. But this is really an encouragement to Christians and a challenge to Christians because uh, as Christians, we need to realize that there is a, <laughs> there's a, a universal, a, a supernatural fight between light and darkness. It's a spiritual fight. It's between God and Satan, between good and evil, uh, between sin and righteousness, between angels and demons, uh, between good guys like the chiefs and bad guys like the 49. Like you kind of get the... That wasn't in my first service. <laughs> but, but that last part was a joke, sorry. Some of you have said that you guys are placing bets on how many times I say something about that. But that's the last one for now. Um, but there is, there is a real battle or fight that's taking place all around us. Whether we know it or not, or whether we want it to be true or not, there is a spiritual fight that is taking place. Now for believers, there is a doctrine that tells us that the end of this fight is already written though. It's a doctrine called Christus Victor, which just means Christ the victorious one, or the victor is Christ. And in that it says, or it reminds us that God is already the victorious one that he's already the one that has won the ultimate battle. And that took place through the atonement. That took place through Jesus when he triumphed over sin, over death, over evil. And that restored this, this harmony or this ability to redeem humanity. So the end is already won. So we're thinking, okay, if the fight's already done, then why do we have to keep fighting? Well, it's an, it's an already present, but not yet also, because uh, we see in the Bible that although the end is already written and the winner is already declared, there is still an adversary or an opponent that we are engaged with daily. And this enemy has a plan for your life, a strategy for your life. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, the front half of that verse, it tells us straight up how the enemy is fighting against you and I, against humanity. And he's got a plan for us. And his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the enemy's strategy. So if we just sit back 
and we allow the enemy's plan to take place in our life, those are the things that we will experience. So in this series, what we want to do is we want to expose the enemy's strategy, like expose his playbook, and at the same time, embrace God's strategy. So what we're doing is we're going to use one of the stories of one of our members as a church, we love to celebrate testimonies and like, like stories of life change. And we've captured a lot of different stories. And there's sometimes that we've just got these, these testimonies that we're sitting on. We're like, one day we're going to use these. Well, typically we, typically we keep stories kind of the, kind of the two-minute, three-minute range uh, so that we can just place it in the right spot and we can share the story and we can celebrate that and, and teach off of that. Um, but about six months ago, we, uh, our pastoral staff was away planning the year 2024, and we knew that we wanted to do a message series on spiritual warfare, on this right here, keep fighting. And we were like, I wonder if any of these stories that we've captured um, would help us in that. And we came across and we remembered one of the stories that were recorded by a man named John Henley, who attends our Ocean Springs location. John Henley's story, the only problem with it was it's about 10 or 11 minutes long. And we're like, man, how, you know, what do we do? And, and it's too good to cut it up and to condense. So really what's going to take place over the next three weeks is you're going to hear the whole story. Each story is kind of a, a portion of his testimony of what God's done in his life. But a lot of times we can relate to what God's done in someone else's life. And we can see how it's also really similar to ours so really, we see early on in John's story how there is this fight for his identity taking place. So we got about two minutes of his testimony that we wanted to share with you uh, now. My name's John. I'm from the Ocean Springs campus, and this is my story of how God delivered me and saved my life and saved my soul. I guess you could say my story of faith is a bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, I was introduced to the gospel as a preteen. Uh, my family took me to church, and I said the prayer of salvation, but I didn't really have much of a foundation for my faith. Um, there wasn't anything for young people at the church I went to, and the gospel was not being lived out in my home. That didn't really set well with me and left a bad taste in my mouth, so I fell away from the faith fairly quickly. When I was in junior high, as part of a class project, we were studying witchcraft. And during that class, we actually levitated somebody off the ground. And that opened up a, a really dark, dark presence in my life. Uh, from that point on, I began to suffer severely with depression and anxiety. I would constantly feel like I wanted to take my own life. and. I was just tortured daily. Uh, I turned to drugs and alcohol to, to try to water those feelings down, I guess you would say. Whatever I could do to try to distract myself from that torture that was going on in my mind. And that went on for years and years. And I fought it. It was just, I was, I was miserable. And, uh, I was probably in my early 20s and I thought to myself, I need a change in my life. 
I need to do something different in my life. I felt like I was in a rut in my life. So at the time, uh, the thing that I thought would get me out of that rut was going back to school. I was working a full-time job, but I said, I'll go back to school. That'll be a change in my life. And maybe that'll get me out of the rut I'm in. And while I was going to school, I met a girl and I liked her, so I asked her out. And her response was an invitation to church. <laughs> so I said yes, because I liked her and I wanted to hang out with her, but she really didn't have any interest in dating me. She just wanted to introduce me to the gospel. So, And so I came to Northwood Church and met some really good people, uh, true men of God, and I experienced God's love through people for the first time. You're going to hear the rest of his story throughout this message series, but John's story probably sounds a lot like some of yours. Now, some of your experiences may be different, but some of the things that he shared was at a really early age, he was walking through some things. And those things were literally shaping the person that he was in the moment that the person also who he was becoming. John's story reveals, yet again, Satan's strategy, which is to attempt to steal and define your identity at a very early age. And his goal is to kill and to destroy your purpose. Killing and destroying purpose, we're actually going to talk more about next week. But what we're going to do today is just hone in on the idea of fighting for your identity. Fighting for your identity. When I say the word identity, um, it, maybe it's better summarized in the question, who am I? If you've ever asked yourself and you don't have to answer it out loud, but, but for real, just for a second, think about the question, who am I? And then fill in the blanks. Just in your own mind, who am I? Take five seconds. Some of you think five seconds is an eternity. It's like, whoa, what just happened? Quiet? Like, I don't, I don't know if I like that. Who am I? Oftentimes, the majority of us instantly go into what I do. What do I do? Maybe titles that we have, roles that we have, those types of things. But for a second, I want to give you a picture of what some of these words actually means. Identity is who I am. Identity is who you actually are. Then there's purpose, which is why you exist. Like, why in the world am I actually here? And then there's function or roles, which is simply, what do I actually do? The enemy, he wants to define your identity by anything other than what it actually should be. So he's going to use any tool or any title or any question to try to shape the very person that you answer the question with who I am. And it happens at a very early age. You saw John's story. You see him get put into scenarios that, that were challenging and shaping the very core of who he is. I've had the privilege of serving and leading student ministry for about 22 years now. So I've been around students 
really, what feels like a really long time. And I see all the time over the last 22 years, but right now, that the enemy wants to define young people's identity very early on. And it happens in a lot of different ways. And some things happen that like as we age and maybe mature, uh, just as we get older, what happens is some of the attacks that the enemy's using on the younger generation, when we look at it as older or think about it, we're like, oh, that's stupid. Why in the world would that even be a question? But it, it, here's the deal. It's because a tactic of the enemy is to shape people's identity. That's why there's such a war right now in sexual identity who you are, who you can be, what you should be, those kinds of questions. Let's go to a deeper level of what's actually taking place in our world. And it's not just trying to redefine labels and terms and genders. What it is, it's an attack on the identity of a very people. And what's happening is it's progressing. It's progressing to where, again, and I'm, I'm going to ask you not to be like, yep, that's stupid. But like, it's moving further than just gender now. And you've got the battle in young people that some are, are no longer attempting to identify as humans, but as animals or as inanimate objects. And yeah, so one of our responses could be, oh, that's ridiculous. Stop. Like, just grow up. But what if we, instead of just shooing that thing away, what if we said, God, would you help us war for the young people's identities? And what's funny is we hear that thing and we're like, oh, that's, that's wild. That would never take place. But the enemy's also really subtle. And if he can't get you with some of those types of things, he's completely satisfied with you finding your identity in something other than who God says you are. So some of you filled in the blanks with things like, uh, I'm a, fill in your career. I'm in the military. That's who you are. Some of you fill in the blank with, I'm a student. Some of you fill in the blank with your roles, with uh, I'm, a, I'm a dad. Some of you, you're like, I'm a wife. Like all of those things are not who you are. I was talking to a friend who's a psychiatrist, honestly, because I wanted to make sure I was factual with some of the things I was thinking about. And talking about this idea of identity and purpose and like function and roles. And he said, Micah, he said, humanity as a whole is in a perpetual identity crisis. The average human has the opportunity to experience no less than 10 identity crises in their lifetime. You're like, what does that mean? Identity crisis often takes place when there's a transition in your role or in your function. So what does that mean? Let's just, let's just walk through life for a second. A kid, they're born, and all they know is they stay at home with either with mom or they at daycare. Like that's, that's the whole world that they live in. And then there is a potential identity crisis at a very early age going from staying at home to going into school. We're like, oh, that's not a big deal. They don't even know what's happening. It's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity. 
elementary school where all the fun things are taking place, where, where all the activities are taking place and all that kind of stuff. And there is an identity crisis that happens when you transition from elementary school to middle school. It's different. It's a different world. Some of your parents have watched your elementary kid become a middle school. It's like, whoa, what just happened? The same thing's happening inside of them. They just can't vocalize it. Then they learn how to be a middle schooler, a junior higher, let alone puberty's taking place. Like all these things are happening. You go from middle school to high school and it's a whole new world. Oftentimes high school is where some of the greatest core attributes of who you are are developed. And oftentimes some of the greatest identity components of who you are. That's why, have you ever met somebody like you gone to a high school reunion and you saw the high school quarterback 20 years later, but he's still the high school quarterback? Identity crisis, got stuck. I transitioned from high school to college or career or whatever that is. You're no longer a student, you're a, I'm out there. I'm sometimes, I'm on my own now. I'm living on my own identity crisis. And about the time you learn to live on your own, you find somebody you're attracted to. And you go from single to a couple. Identity crisis. That couple becomes married and all of a sudden, whoa, this is, whoa, identity crisis. And about the time you learn how to be married, there's another human being in your house. What is this? Well, it's its own identity crisis, but also now you have one because you're not just a spouse, you're a parent, a new function, a new role. This is where oftentimes some of the most dramatic identity crisis take place. And I'm very aware of those that stay home with kids is you give your life to a young family, like everything that you are, like this is all I know. <laughs> and you give your life to that and then all of a sudden that, I, I mean this with respect, but that little identity crisis goes to school. And this thing that you once, that's all you lived for is no longer there as much. And now who am I? Who am I? Why do I exist? What's the point of me? That kid continues through the process. That kid eventually becomes a teenager and you've got just a house full of identity crises, you know. And then that teenager launches and all of a sudden this home that once was full for 18 years, all of a sudden is just two people again. Identity crisis. And then it goes all the way that one day those two people become one people. Identity crisis. If we find our identity in something that is ever-changing, we will be continually in crisis. That's why we have to fight and we have to keep fighting. The kingdom of this world says that your function or what you do is what actually is your purpose. It's why you exist. Your what you do is why you exist and those two things define your identity. And I'm telling you this, that if we subscribe and live by this kingdom, the kingdom of the world, it will lead to constant crisis and bondage. Constant crisis looks like a continual identity crisis. 
If there's an average of 10 in a lifespan and the average lifespan of a human in America is 74 years old, then the average age or turnaround time for a identity crisis is every seven and a half years. That sounds like crisis if you know that you're constantly going through this thing. John shared it, but I think it's important to know that oftentimes when we lose our identity, or we can't figure this thing out, we can't find out our purpose, what do we do? We cope. John said he went to, I love the way he talks. Like, he's just a dude. He's like, well, I went to drugs and alcohol. Like, he like nonchalantly said somebody's levitating. I'm like, yo, <laughs> I'd put a little inflection on that thing. Like, yo, somebody <laughs> levitated. Like, He's like, yeah, so and things were tough, so I kind of turned to drugs and alcohol. What's your coping mechanism? For many, for many, it is alcohol. For many. If you drink to numb yourself, that is your coping mechanism. If you get through the day and you can't wait to get through the day so you can have a drink so that you can chill, you're coping. You're coping. Others cope with pornography. Others cope with their phone. Like, the enemy doesn't care what you cope with. He cares that he captures your identity. So some of us literally cope with our phone, and what that is, it's, it literally just mutes everything else around us. That's the beauty of the phone. We doom scroll. We're on social media literally just scrolling away, scrolling away. Or we're on our phone playing bubble breaker because nothing else exists when I'm just stuck here. It's a coping mechanism, which is what I believe to be the next phase of the enemy's strategy, where, where the identity that he gives you doesn't actually satisfy you, but you've subscribed to that plan, but it still leaves you feeling empty. And the Bible says that eternity is planted in the hearts of mankind. Therefore, there's something in us that can't be satisfied by anything other than Christ, other than God, but we've subscribed to the enemy's plan for our life or, or his strategy, so we're left unsatisfied. He gives us coping mechanism that perpetually leads to death. This is the enemy's plan to steal kill and destroy. And if John 10 ended with the enemy's plan, then we are in a world of trouble. But John 10, what I just read to you was just the front part. Because this is Jesus speaking, and it was Jesus speaking saying, hey, I'm going to expose the enemy's strategy to you. And he says, hey, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But he says, but I came that you can have life. And you can have it abundantly. When you read and do a study on those words, it is talking about the good life. It is talking about the fulfilled life. It is talking about the purposeful, the, the satisfying life. That when you lay your head down, all those things may have happened all throughout the day. There is still a contentment knowing that you are fulfilling the plan that God has and the purpose that God has for your life. He says, I have come that you would have life and have it abundantly. Where the enemy seeks to steal your identity, God goes and he gives you a brand new one. He gives you a brand new identity. Uh, in that story with John, the defining moment in his story, not just for today, but you'll see the way it plays out over the next several weeks, the defining moment for John's story was when he experienced God's love. 
He experienced something that the world could not offer, that the world never gave him. He experienced something that satisfied something deep inside of him and he experienced new birth. That's a salvation. Like he got saved and with that came a brand new identity and true identity becomes clear when you experience God's love. Like all of a sudden we understand what it actually is. About four years ago, I was being stubborn and I was being cheap and how that manifested itself out was I refused to go to the eye doctor and get a new prescription. I was having headaches, everything was blurry, but I had glass and they were fine. They weren't too scratched up. So all I did, I didn't even know what you guys looked like. I was just like, all right, cool, 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 cool. Four years went by where I was wearing an old prescription. The problem was I needed a new one. So everything in my life was cloudy. Everything in my life was blurry. And all of a sudden, one day, I got a new prescription and it changed the very way that I live. When we surrender our life to Jesus, it's not just shifting some things around in our lives. It's literally a brand new identity. And it's something that we are given. We don't work ourselves up to it. We don't do good enough to achieve this thing. No, a new identity is received. It's not achieved. Another trap of the enemy. Work harder. Do better. Read the Bible more. Do this. Do that. Do that. Don't do that. Do this. And what happens is we get on such a ladder of religion mindset that we, we feel close to God when we do good, but then we do bad or we don't do what we know we should, we feel so far from God. And that is a works-based Christianity. It's, it's what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus watched the Pharisees, the, the teachers of religious law. He watched the way that they lived, and he watched the burden that it was putting on people that were really trying to do good. And Jesus said, hey, guys. He said, take, take my yoke upon you. He said, take the way that I'm living on you. And he says this phrase, he says, my burden is different. He says, it's easy. He says, it's, it's light. And it leads to abundant life. But you can't earn this new identity. You can't achieve it. It's the new prescription. <laughs> Go to the good physician receive it, and it changes the very identity that all of the other things flow out of. As believers, your identity is determined by who God says you are, not what others say. So the kingdom of God says that your identity or, or who I am, it actually confirms the very reason that you live. It reveals your purpose, why you exist. And then out of that, that defines your function. It defines your role, what you do, which actually leads to abundant life and freedom. Now, what I'm not suggesting to you is that your roles are no longer the same. <laughs> No, you actually can have the exact, you will have the exact same role. It's just you determine which kingdom you're going to live through, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God. 
So what that looks like is the role that I possess or the title that I have for this season in my life, how can I most utilize this title for the good of those around me, but for the glory of God? So if you're a mom and you've got those kids at home right now, then how can I love these kids the way that God loves me? How can I, in, in the most elementary ways, reveal Christ to them in these moments Man, if you're a student, how can I be a light in a dark place? How can I, how can I share the love of Jesus, the, the love that I've received? What are the small moments? I used to think that literally meant like at the lunch table, you got to go and shut the whole lunchroom down and start preaching the gospel. That was just immature. I did it once and it was, I don't know what happened. People, it wasn't, people weren't as receptive as I thought they would be. I'll say it like that. I did it once at church camp too, and they were very receptive, but that's church camp. <laughs> the whole camp got saved, but whatever, you know what I mean. This is what it means for a student. Let me help you. It means that that one friend, just the one. <laughs> Jesus was always interested in the one. It's fascinating. In a world that's looking at the masses, God looks at the one and he goes to Zacchaeus' house. I don't know what Jesus said to Zacchaeus but I know that he had one-on-one -on -one interaction with him and something happened that Zacchaeus's heart was transformed in the one-on-one -on -one moments. What does it look like as a young person? It means, it means that your Snapchat's different. Yeah, it's literally that simple. It means that you look different than the world. It means that your DMs, they're different. It means that when people find out you go to church, they're not like, what? Ain't no way that thing goes to church. No, it's, it's different. It's living a life that allows the light that's impacted you to shine through you. It, it's, it's that. I think sometimes we complicate it to such a level that it's not even achievable. But when the identity is clear here, the other stuff just becomes fueled by that identity. So we ask ourselves, how do I do this? <laughs> cool, I agree with you. How do I fight for my identity? You said keep fighting. I believe in what you said. Now how do I actually do this? And I think we should do it by looking at the one who our identity is built off of, Jesus. Jesus, fully God, fully man, had to fight for his identity as well. Before Jesus ever did one miracle, he was in a fight for his identity. Before he went into any sort of public ministry, he went into a personal trial. He goes into the garden, or he goes into the wilderness for an extended period of time, and in this wilderness, He's fasting. Fasting simply means he's withholding himself from food. It's a sacrifice. It's an act of worship to God, and it's a moment of consecration before God. In the wilderness and in his moments of weakness, he comes face to face with Satan himself, the tempter. Wow. How's that? Jesus is in the wilderness, and the enemy, the one that wants to steal, kill, and destroy, 
decides he wants to steal, kill, and destroy Jesus as well. And the first thing that he attacks is Jesus' very identity. If he can change what Jesus thinks about himself, or at least get him to, to act differently than who he says he is, he's got him. There's a series of events that are taking place, but Jesus is being tempted by the devil. One of those is in his moment of hunger. Imagine the moment of hunger that you haven't eaten for over a month. Some of you are like, yo, I'm hungry and it's not even noon yet. You know what I mean? Like, like a month, that's wild. Jesus is in the wilderness. The enemy sees him. And in his moment of weakness, the enemy says, Jesus, hey, first, there ain't nobody around. So nobody's going to know but me and you, okay? Let's just, I'm just going to set that up right here. Like, ain't nobody going to know about this. He says, but you're the son of God, right? If you're actually the son of God, not for you to prove it to me, but maybe, maybe just for you to, to know that this is really who you are, take those rocks that are right beside of you and turn them into bread. Now, Oliver's like, well, of course Jesus doesn't fail, right? Being the very bread of life, Jesus is going to say that in about two years. He's going to make the famous quote, I am the bread of life. But right there, he is actually being tempted with something that he actually is, his identity. Jesus himself responds with scripture. He responds with the word of God. Each time in the three attempts, to steal Jesus' identity, Jesus responds with the word of God each time. And I'm going to tell you this, the way that you fight for your identity is by actually knowing and knowing and believing what God says about you. If we don't have this, we have nothing. What does, we know what the world says about us. We know what we want to say about us, but what does God say about me? If you're a follower of Jesus, this is the time to really dial in. In the book of Ephesians, the, the book of Ephesians is, is a moment where Paul was taking time to write a letter to the church in Ephesus. That's what Ephesians is. It's a Pauline epistle where Paul is writing to the church to encourage, to correct, to train, to rebuke, to, to build the church up. And Ephesians starts with Paul planting the, the church's identity on Christ, saying, okay, before we say anything, you need to know who you are. Before you ever change the way you act, you need to know who in the world you are. And he plants the church's identity on that faithful, that firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And he says this, he says, this is who you are. This is why you exist. So out of that understanding, this is how you are to live. Reminding himself and reminding the people that if they miss this, they're simply going to fall into legalism. That Jesus just talked about like, hey, Jesus is like, don't do it. It's the easy, the light burden. Follow me. He's saying, if you miss the fact that you are a follower of Jesus first, then you're going to fall straight into legalism versus a relationship with God. But then Paul says this. He says, blessed 
be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, says, in him we have redemption through his blood. You have the forgiveness of your trespasses, not according to what you've done, but according to the riches of his grace. And it says that his grace, he lavished it upon you. Paul was saying then to people that have surrendered their life to Jesus, but Paul is still saying to us now today that your identity as a child of God says that you are blessed. For those of you that feel just impoverished, know this, the Bible says it's not because of what you've done, it's because of who he is that you are blessed. It says that you are chosen. One of the greatest attacks of the enemy is to make us feel unseen. It says that the creator of the universe, the victor, has chosen you. It says that you are now holy, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. It says that you are now blameless. You are loved. Man, how many times do we feel totally unloved? Just as a pastor, I see it. And I see it in this room right now. Some of you literally, you identify as the abused, not the chosen. Your identity is in what happened in the past to you. Your identity is in the things that you've done negatively. But it's saying that you're loved, that you're chosen, that you're blameless, that you're adopted, that you're redeemed. And it says that you're forgiven. Can I tell you this? If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, your identity is not in the failures of your sinful nature. You're free. And the Bible says, if the Son has set you free, then you're actually free. You're free indeed. The abundant life is found only through an identity in Christ. Without this message, the next two weeks make absolutely no sense because we're gonna talk about purpose next week. There's no way we can get into purpose without knowing who we are first because that's the kingdom of God principle. For those of you in this room that you are not a follower of Jesus, this is your moment. If you are not a follower of Jesus, and I mean this, and I... I, (laughs) You are on the wrong side of the battle and the end is already written. And I feel a responsibility to say that some of us are just flirting with disaster and there is no way you will ever be satisfied in eternity. You can be satisfied and successful on this earth, but it is impossible in eternity apart from Jesus. It's not saying it's gonna be easy. You'll hear John's story the next two weeks. Sometimes it feels like hell. But guess what? He's still victorious.